Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Brando Cremona, a PhD candidate at Bocconi University, and Maria Pasador, an academic fellow at Bocconi University. We'll be discussing their article, Shareholder Activism Today, Did Barbarians Storm the Gate?, which is forthcoming in the UC Davis Business Law Journal. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Brando, Maria, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. I wondered if we could start the conversation a little bit by talking about the origins and maybe the recent history of shareholder activism in the United States and Europe. Where did shareholder activism first emerge and how has it spread to other jurisdictions over the years? Sure. So this is a very interesting item and topic of conversation. So actually, like many other things in the corporate world, scholars have identified the U.S. as the birthplace of activism. And in particular, uh, it began to emerge as a phenomenon around the 70s. Uh, uh, many remember probably those famous letters by Carl Icahn that laid out some basic investment strategy tools that many activists consider still today to be a kind of uh, guide in their daily daily activities. We also have some very famous academics that did studies published in very famous journals that summarized more than 30 years of research into activism that are very, very valuable topics and tools to, to then approach the subject in a more comprehensive way. I would, however, say that maybe 2014 has been really the year where we have registered a spike of activist engagement. And since then, activists have been very proactive in targeting many, many new companies, and the phenomenon has gained in prominence even more than before. Particularly, if you consider just data relating to 2017, 2018, and evidence on announcement and holding returns and characteristics as well as dynamics of targeted companies, you see there's been a jump both in the number as well as in the quality of the operations that have been made by activists. As to shareholder activism, the EU is not immune to the infection of the US, but some preliminary comments enable us to identify the most striking differences between the activist tendencies in the US and in Europe. First, the cultural background. In the EU, activist investors have long been perceived as disturbers or speculators. Second, the hostility that activists themselves often have with respect to non-domestic markets, led activists, mainly from the U.S., to target their activities, especially in the U.S. Third, the securities of European-listed companies have lower levels of liquidity than their American peers' counterparts due to their lower capitalization compared to the amount of floating stock available. Fourth, EU companies have very different ownership structure, dominated by controlling shareholder. Despite the fact that the structure of the EU corporate ownership is concentrated and it's difficult for minority shareholders to divert the strategic approach or objectives of companies, the prima facie idea that shareholder activism is rather harmful as it focuses on short-term and on distribution of resources that is not capable of assuring long-term growth has actually been denied by the fact that the average holding period of the positions held by activist institutional investors is essentially the same as that of a large majority of active market investors. 
But in spite of the obstacles, the active trend in the European market reflected the trend in the United States, registering good rates of growth in both the United Kingdom and continental Europe, although certainly not comparable with those in the United States. In a nutshell, in the EU, activists seem to privilege campaigns aimed at obtaining representation within the board, and companies often undertake buyback campaigns, whereas in the EU, despite rising up trend, market experts expect not to reach US standards. There's an activist inside report that has to December 2017 tells us that more than 130 EU companies had been publicly targeted by shareholders' requests, while the number was almost four times higher in the US. Hedge funds are also extremely active in Europe, being involved in 25% of the campaigns, with a predominance of the US-based hedge funds, which account for 20% of the campaigns, with a predominance of US-based hedge funds, which account for 20% of the campaigns themselves. The EU is what we called an almost unexplored realm, yet full of unforeseen surprises that led us to intriguing research questions we will perhaps explore with you later on. Traditionally, one of the techniques for disciplining management and reducing agency costs is the market for takeovers. How does shareholder activism discipline as a disciplining tool from the market for takeovers? This is a very interesting question as well. And uh, actually, both, I would say, in the activist scenario as well as in the takeover scenario, Managers always want to protect themselves in a sort of way, attracting therefore still those items like negative opinion or uh, backlash in terms of uh, governance issues that constitute the main arguments against their action, both by activists as well as by prospective bidders. But I think that it's very interesting to note as well that shareholder activism and corporate takeovers, though being historically viewed as mutually exclusive channels for management discipline, actually have been increasingly used synchronized way in recent years. Uh, just as an example, I can think about Carl Icahn's activism uh, in the Dell transaction, where eventually he couldn't stop the transaction, but he managed to get the consideration increased by quite a remarkable amount in, in terms of overall uh, dollars, so not in terms of dollars per share. And also activists uh, use the same tools to discipline managers that an M&A bidder in a normal takeover would use. Just the, the main those um, items would be proxy contests and engaging in proxy wars. So I would say that activists and bidders alike could use and use proxy as a tool to get rid of poison pills in companies than to pave the way for a subsequent acquisition. So I would say in the end, they also activists try to identify those undervalued companies locating upside potential the same way or in a very similar way that bidders the bidders do. And moreover, their engagement can also remove obstacles to subsequent uh, takeovers because after you remove the poison pill, then the company is more contestable from this point of view or also a staggered board. So basically, one of the hypotheses which we engaged in, which, however, could have been engaged more thoroughly, maybe as a research question for another article, is whether the targets of activism would register high returns because not only investors believe the ideas the activists tell them, but also because investors expect that those same companies will be acquired by a subsequent bidder 
because activists won't be carrying out the company's business uh, indefinitely. It's not in their strategy, but maybe they can cause a company to be acquired ultimately by a bidder that will pay a sizable premium for the company. However, as said, they are not bidders themselves. So bidders entail, being a bidder entails a great deal of financial as well as managerial exposure that an activist doesn't want to have. Also, from the perspective of an activist, exiting the investment via merger or acquisition could help them solve a problem of getting rid of sizable positions they acquired uh, in the target, which cannot be disposed very easily, also in consideration of the applicable federal uh, rules. So you draw a few common threads between the market for takeovers and shareholder activism. And of course, management does have defense mechanisms against both. We would argue that those defense mechanisms are used to entrench management and to protect it from discipline from the market or from shareholders. Another view might be that they allow management to resist inappropriate value-destroying activism or takeover attempts. Could you maybe discuss kind of what those defense mechanisms are and maybe what the interplay is between defense mechanisms for M&A and those for shareholder activism? Sure, 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 sure. First thing to note here is that the same defense mechanisms you use in M&A are very, very useful and very effective also in the activist world with some twists. So one of them, maybe one of the most important together with the poison pill is the staggered board mechanism. And this actually strikes at the heart of the activist's strategy because then as a company, you would have activists engaging in proxy wars to remove the management, especially to remove the board of directors and replacing it with more complacent uh, directors uh, sharing their ideas and their views for the company. But at the same time, if the company has a staggered board, activists cannot reach their goals, uh, let's say, immediately. They Either they may need to coagulate a sufficient support uh, in more than one uh, shareholder meeting, or they would need to launch a proxy war to change bylaws, which can be more difficult to achieve than simply proposing new individuals to serve as directors. Another very important defense, as mentioned, are poison pills. So the general idea, as everyone knows, is dissuading outside the interferences. It can be a takeover attempt, can be also an activist with the current uh, managerial direction that the company has taken. However, just thinking about the interplay between poison pills and activists, uh, a very famous uh, example in this regard was the case involving the Sotheby's auction house company. And the idea behind the poison pill here is that you won't prevent the activists from gaining a foothold in your company, but you must be very careful in choosing where to put um, the cut in the foothold they will acquire. So, because you may not put like a threshold which is too low. You should also take into consideration the current shareholding structure of the company. So you cannot upset your current shareholders by putting the threshold too low. And at the same time, I think it's more important in the context of activists than in other ones, maybe also for MA, but for activists, it takes a very interesting aspect, the definition that poison pill regulations have of groups. Because In the end, activists drive a great part of their energy and their power in coordinating themselves with other shareholders, especially institutional or other activists that invest in the same company. And if you limit the definition of of group within the definition of poison pill or within the rules for poison pills, then apart from setting a low threshold, you can really, really undo much of the harm in the managerial view, of course, that the activists can uh, cause to the company. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there is Delaware Chancery 
or um, Supreme Court decision yet on, on this topic, basically stating what the red line is for a definition of groups that goes a bit beyond what's acceptable, which is too overbroad, or on the other side, which is acceptably generic, let's say. There are other defenses as well, such as dual classes. Shares are also very important. I think we've seen that companies adopting dual class structures, okay, they are not companies uh, that are born public. They are basically having a very strong founder position or a very eminent leader in the company that wants to retain voting power. They are very difficult to attack. So these sort of defenses are very effective both against bidders as well against uh, activists. And the same goes for those so-called dead-hand proxy puts, which are none other than covenants you put in debt or other sort of uh, instruments, which basically accelerate the existing debt in the event in which you change the composition of the board. And in a sort of way, the interesting feature about this defense is that when you face an activist threat, essentially criticizing the way you manage a company, you may fight the activist on its same ground because in the event in which the activist reaches his ultimate objective, namely replacing you as the, as the directors of the company, they will, at least in the immediate, not cause an improvement of the company's financial situation, but rather a deterioration because all the company's debts will become due and will accelerate. So the way the defense mechanism works is very interesting because it tends to fight off the activists on the same field where they try to catch the, the managers. In this paper, you look into some empirical research questions. I wonder if you could uh, share for the listeners what questions you set out to answer, how are the studies, the empirical studies designed, and what conclusions can be drawn from them? Part one of the paper aims at giving a comprehensive framework of shareholder activism in Europe as no systematic studies are available due to the absence of data that are even remotely similar to the ones available in the overseas scenario thanks to uh, Schedule 13D. Part two of the paper focuses on how helpful some borrowed defense mechanisms are in the U.S. environment. As to the former, it seemed necessary to examine the short-term and long-term effects of activists in order to address three questions. Does an activist engagement usually have an abnormal return in the minus 20 plus 20 day trading window? Are there any meaningful differences depending on the country of the target company or on the request from the activist? Another question is, is there any evidence of the systematic underperformance of the action before the engagement? And if so, does this underperformance persist after the engagement? And the last one is, how does the profitability of the target company and of the investment decisions change in the medium to long-term window after engagement? Is it true that target companies sacrifice the future for a quick buck? So we built up a database that comprises 165 public engagements of activist investors from January 2004 to September 2017. And activists in the sample targeted 125 companies in Germany, Italy, France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Spain, Finland, Ireland, and Belgium. The first problem is that we had trouble in identifying thresholds and deadlines in the EU, as there's no compulsory declaration of intent comparable to item 4 of the Schedule 13D in all countries other than France. 
So for the purpose of such comparison, notwithstanding those unparalleled inconsistencies, the date of engagement was chosen to be the date of a public demand, not that of disclosure, although open points hiding. We used Thomson Reuters Corporate Governance Intelligence at Factiva that helped us in retrieving target firm, activist investor names, disclosure dates, number of yearly engagements, uh, confirming also the activism's post-cyclical nature and periodic fluctuations. Several considerations can be foretold. There's a steep decrease in campaigns in 2008, as well as the prominent role of German France and Italy, closely followed by the Netherlands. The difference in terms of industry is quite remarkable. The strong predominance of technological and retail companies compared to financial and energy ones, as well as in healthcare and holding companies. Among companies, ASM International and Carrefour are target companies of four campaigns, followed by Volkswagen, BB&B, and TNT Express uh, at a rate of three campaigns. Then there are 21 cases of wolf packs, thereby reporting a perhaps increasing value or about 10% above that which was previously reported in the literature. Then, thanks to the databases, we could also derive some other conventional analysis variables. So, uh, the engagement results were retrieved, but the sample was reduced uh, to 119 engagements until December 2014 in order to calculate the medium-term effects on operating performance and investment decision. We ended up noticing that companies targeted by activists systematically underperforming the medium-term prior to the event. In the EU, there's no medium-term reversal of short-term effects, so targeted firms who initially systematically underperformed their respective return, then move in line with the risk profile of the medium-term window post-engagement. Moreover, the company's age is strongly linked to a lower Tobin's queue. Therefore, it can lead to lower growth prospects in more mature firms and lower price-to-book ratios. Short-term abnormal returns are also unusually high when target firms are French companies and when activist questions relate to M&A or governance issues. There are no short-term gains at the detriment of medium-term performance or shareholders past activist engagement, and activist targeted companies systematically underperform the market given their risk profile. While according to the literature, if activism is linked to the conduct of hedge funds, then their presence increases the size of the board and the internal representation of various parties in the board, promoting M&A transaction and also boosting the likelihood of replacing the CEO, our results show that a good reputation, the adoption of best practices, the ability to generate high returns for shareholders and to establish positive relations between the management and the shareholders is the very best antidote, so the defense mechanisms that companies naturally have. As to the latter, so going back to defense mechanisms, we found out that a defense mechanism does not have a uniform impact on the creation of value by activists who cannot predict the variability of the sample of abnormal returns, and results do not confirm the thesis that fostering managerial entrenchment defense mechanisms weakens the rigidity of the market for corporate control and prevents equity value creation. Although our study cannot examine, given the data available on FactSat, the effectiveness of defense mechanisms systems other than poison pills and staggered boards. We can say that dual-class shares are effective in reducing the probability of success of activist campaigns too, and poison pills or staggered board structures uh, also lower the odds of success of an activist attack around minus 7%. This means that companies with higher performance and more resources can easily adjust to the changes imposed by activists. 
In conclusion, in contrast to what previously out, defense mechanisms seem to negatively impact the equity value of companies, whereas in line with the mainstream view, the chances of success of activist campaigns are related to the presence of defense mechanisms, mainly as I said, poison pills and stacker boards. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from your paper? And as you alluded earlier, are there any open research questions you'd like to pursue? Seems like this is our elevator pitch. Firstly, we demystify the effects of such a controversial style of investment that is perceived in a highly critical way, especially in Europe, where there is nevertheless considerable upward trend with the characteristics we mentioned earlier. That is the starting point to delve into analyzing defense phenomena. Secondly, in fact, uh, despite the potential creation of value, managers may wish to preserve the company from activist campaigns because they attract unfavorable public opinion and raise corporate governance issues that take time and attention away from the executives. But we don't know nearly enough about them and would love to explore it in depth in the future. More precisely, it would be extremely useful to dwell again on this latest research question and therefore study defense mechanisms in a couple of years, even with regard to the European context. And not only because the EU is experiencing a boom in this phenomenon, but also because the study conducting in the US has not addressed all the possible defense mechanisms mentioned in the theoretical part of this work. And in the absence of data banks that are essential to this sort of research, we really would love to go back to that in the future. I don't know if I may add some two words to it, but very, very briefly. I consider also the current crisis we are on because the article was written in the databases we base the research on or derived from a situation which predates the current uh, pandemic. I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see also the impact in terms of how long and how will the activists uh, adapt to this current situation and how will the data correlate eventually with the data we, we found. So I believe our paper gives a very interesting and good picture of what the world was maybe probably still is to a certain extent but it's going to be very interesting to delve into how the world changed and how the activist world also adapted our guests today have been brando cremona a phd candidate at bocconi university and maria pastor an academic fellow at bocconi university We've discussed their article, Shareholder Activism Today, Did Barbarians Storm the Gate?, which is forthcoming in the UC Davis Business Law Journal. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Brando, Maria, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.